This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, I am interviewing Nondombi Naomi Tutu. Reverend Tutu is my mom and associate rector at All Saints Episcopal Church in Beverly Hills. The challenges of growing up black and female in apartheid South Africa have been foundational in her life and her activism. She was educated in Swaziland, the U.S., and England, and her career path has seen her be a development consultant in West Africa and a professor at the University of Hartford, the University of Connecticut, and Brevard College. She has a master's degree in international economic development and four honorary doctorates. In addition to being an ordained clergy member, she is also a public speaker and human rights activist. Her introduction will never do her justice, so here's our conversation. So I'm going to jump right in. Okay. You've said that your resume is not a full explanation of who you are as a person. So I want to ask you what is missing from it that you think people should know about you. So, I mean, you know, the resume really just says how what your education and what jobs you've had. It doesn't tell the story of who you are as a person. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, how you got sick in my case, how I got sick as a little child um, because my parents were living in a garage when my my dad was a curate in Binoni and that that's how I ended up living with my grandparents and that's how it ended up that my family moved to England without me. It doesn't talk about the fact that I went to boarding school at six and a half and, and you know and how that impacted who I became you know that for a lot of my life I refused to cry because that was that you know how you kept your sanity and your place in in the the community in boarding school is you didn't cry you didn't cry when your parents left you didn't cry when the teachers hit you you didn't cry when people teased you so that you know so that's that's the kind of thing that I'm saying that you know when somebody looks at my resume those kinds of stories don't appear they don't it doesn't tell you about the 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 magic that was my grandmother's you know my my paternal grandmother who was as we say in in South Africa usofti so she was so soft and cared about everybody and didn't want anybody's feelings hurt and how important it was for me that she was a part of my life 
or my maternal grandmother who was a single mother and who gave her children opportunities that she had never had and that they should not have had as children of a single mother domestic worker. And that what it meant to me to see this black woman in South Africa who lived in, a, when, when I first was aware, lived in a one room, a one roomed place with her son and was working in a, um, a white people's home as a domestic worker and taught me about carrying yourself with pride and dignity and, and being aware of who you are as a woman in the world. How did growing up in South Africa and witnessing the fight against apartheid and your father's involvement in dismantling it shape your view of activism? I think the main thing that growing up under apartheid um, really taught me and the way it shaped my view about um, activism and the struggle for human rights was that I was clear very early in my life that all struggles for justice were connected. And, um, and that, so seeing people like my father, like, like they're just seeing in our community that as people struggled against apartheid, they celebrated the struggles of, of people around the world, the anti-colonial struggle in the rest of the African continent, that as, as nations became independent, it was a victory for us even though we were still under apartheid, that we looked at the civil rights movement in this country and as acts were passed in the United States that, that changed the way um, that um, black people were not allowed to vote, that, that gave access to black people for um, educational opportunities, for financial in, um, opportunities that they had not had under Jim Crow that though seeing those kinds of actions for me felt like victories for me because the people that I looked up to looked upon them as victories for our struggle and um and and so so I guess that that is partly I hope what I I taught you and your siblings that you know I I have chosen where I am going to put my energy in this struggle um I expect you to put your energy somewhere in the struggle for human rights but I don't really care where you put your energy because I believe in the connectedness of all the movements um, for human rights so that when you chose Palestine as the place that you were committed to, I was happy because to me the lesson of apartheid had then been passed on to you that the liberation of the people of Palestine is part and parcel of the liberation of the people of South Africa. Um, so that's one is that all of the, the, the struggles in the world that are about human dignity, justice for all human beings, access for human beings, that all of them are connected. 
the the other was one that I had a hard time with initially as a, particularly as a young person the 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 idea that um, oppression means that no one in that society is free mm-hmm. and um, and that was a big one that my my father used to say all the time your your grandfather would be you know white south africans you will not be free unless we are free come join the winning side you know that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and but also you know but but clearly in in the struggle against apartheid that that was the foundational thing that everyone was saying you know so president nelson mandela said that at his trial that his opposition is to the oppression of anyone and that under apartheid no one in south africa was free and and i say it it, it took me a while to to understand that because if you looked on the surface clearly white south africans were and continue on in a large part to live a wonderful life in a country where the vast majority of people were struggling not just for political freedom but for the economic benefits that accrue to full citizens so you mentioned you know where you you chose to put your energy when you were younger did you think that you know your activism would be where you put your energy and it'd be a lifelong venture journey or did you think uh, uh i'll be a banker or a lawyer or something like that <laughs> so well i thought that it was not it's not a separate thing right so my undergraduate degree and my first masters are in economics economics and development economics so banker okay i was not a banker <laughs> i was an economist which is a different thing ma'am excuse you um but that but that part of that for me is understanding the economy and working in the e- economic structure to make the economy a place that empowers people that supply makes sure that people's needs are supplied that makes sure that there are people not people going to bed hungry or people who are homeless in a, a com- in a, a society a country a world where it is absolutely possible to feed and 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 house every single human being and so for me initially i thought that that was where i wanted to put my energy in this struggle was in the economic sphere of the struggle but i quickly realized um that i'm really not an economist mm-hmm. um <laughs> so yeah so pivoted very quickly away from that not very quickly but pretty quickly what did you pivot to So I thought I was pivoting to um social activism particularly around uh gender issues. Um and um and in particular gender-based violence that um that that was a a a personal area of commitment for me out of my own lived experience as having been in an abusive relationship um and then clearly also 
as a black woman, I could not um, undo, take, separate my femaleness from my blackness. And so be, quickly became, to, in my own view, a race and gender activist. And, I, and I, I tell people all the time that, and I'm very clear that that might appear as a selfish activism because I am clearly a black woman. And, and yet, for me, it is a foundational activism because my experiences as a black woman in, in, and a black female child in South Africa, in England, in the US, in France, anywhere I was were foundational and, 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 and limited because I was a black female person. And so I was clear that that was the place that I was going to start my fight for myself and for the women and girls who surrounded me, the women and girls who supported me, and the women and girls who um, I, I felt called to support. So you're still, you know, an activist, but you then went on to become a priest later on in life. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, how did that journey happen for you? How did it come about? Why was it later on? What... <laughs> What called you to become a member of clergy? <laughs> so, um, you know, actually the first time that I, I felt a call to the priesthood was very soon after I finished my first master's. So I was about 24 when I, um, when I, 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 I felt a call to ministry. And what stopped me from following that call was that I, um, I had grown up my whole life being told how much I looked like my father. Mm. And so I was like, you know, people keep telling me about I have his nose, so no, I don't want his job. I don't want to be a mini Desmond in my work space as I am in my physical appearance. And, um, and so I, I really fought that call to ordination from the time I was 24. I had a number of, of times when the call felt really strong and I just was stronger. I, I was like, no. Like, you know, Holy Spirit, you must have got lost. Okay. You're at the wrong address. This is not what I'm going to do. This is not. And and at the same time, feeling very cold, but feeling that, no, I, I there is no way I want people to say that I'm following in my father's footsteps. And um, And I think that, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I I really did feel that already in most things I was introduced as the daughter of mm-hmm. right and so um and so now the reverend daughter of the reverend oh no that's not going to work for me and 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 so didn't have I think a, the the sense of myself and the call to priesthood as being about me 
in the way that I feel it now. And that, you know, my father has done what he was called to do. He feel he has lived his life, right? He has lived his call. He has done what his call has called him to. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a weird place to put it. But anyway, that he's he's lived his his call. And so how can I let his living his call stop me from listening to my call? And so by the time you're 50, it's kind of like, hey, you know, if I've been the daughter of all these years, I'm going to continue to be the daughter of, so I might as well do what I feel that my spirit is being called to. And and there's a freedom in being older like that, that, you know, whatever people want to say, oh, you're following in your father's footsteps. I still say, no, I'm not following my father. But, you know, it's not like I'm going to go to bed stressing about the number of people who've said you're following in your father's footsteps. So then what would your advice be for people who may want to explore their spirituality but may not want to do that as part of the church? And I know a a lot of people who the institutional church is not the place that they experience their relationship with God. And I think that is a a challenge to us in institutional religion, that what is it that we are doing that is making people feel that rather than offering them a path to God, we are blocking their access and their relationship to God, Um, or that we are, are, are teaching them a God who does not look upon them with absolute love and adoration. And, and and to those people, I would say, live your live your spirituality. Be be um, um, be confident in your relationship with God, whoever you call God, how whatever name you give God. Be confident in your relationship with God. I mean, there was a time when I stopped being part of the institutional church. And um, my father used to, you know, Kulu used to call me all the time. Heathen. heathen. Mm. And now it's you mm-hmm. who's the heathen. I am. So I'm so like, yeah, passing it on. <laughs> but, um, and, and, and in that time, I did not feel that I was disconnected from God. And so what I would say to somebody who feels that they, they have, they want a spiritual life, but the church doesn't offer them that place, the religious institutions don't offer them that space, I would say be confident. Be confident in a God who looks upon you and says, hey, you are good, and, and, and work from that place that God created you in God's image and and loves you and expects you to live in the world as someone who knows God's love, no matter that you are not affiliated with an institutional religion. So that's kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> is it is? I don't know. <laughs> um, this one actually was sourced from a listener named Victoria Park, and she wanted me to ask... <laughs> Do priests have fun? Oh, well, some do. I mean, it's like every it's like every other um, life journey that you choose how you approach that call, right? 
I mean, so there are, I'm sure there are priests who live miserable lives. Um, and, and, and I would say if that's the case, you know, somewhere the connection with God has gone a little squiffy because um, I don't believe that our God would have made this amazing world for us to look at, to to be part of, for us to to be in sackcloth and ashes all the time. But yeah, I you know I have a whole set of friends who are priests, and we get together. We go out to dinner pre-COVID. We <laughs> gather for drinks. We, um, we, we tell jokes. We tell jokes even in our sermons. And we make fun of one another because even in the celebration of um, the sacraments, for instance, there are times when we mess up and we make fun of each other. We laugh in the middle of services, believe you. So, uh, yes, priests have fun, Victoria Parks. <laughs> So another question I have for you that sort of amazes your son-in-law, and so I want to ask is because people don't really know that you're an introvert. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you travel around speaking pre-COVID. And (laughs) and when, you know, you're in the moment or when you're at an event and you're with people, you give them your all and you're very on. And then after that, you are just absolutely exhausted. So how do you handle that balance of being an introvert and the public speaking? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who maybe struggle with this. Mm. And so how do you, because you come off as an extrovert. Yeah, well, I don't know that I come off as an extrovert, but yeah, I think, you know, um, it's, it, it's a, it, as you say, it is a balance and I'm, I'm not always good at, at keeping that balance. So um, I have, but I have learned in, the years that I've been doing public speaking and and, um, workshops and stuff and that to be clear, even when I'm being hosted by somebody, that I need at least 15, 20 minutes between things. Because often when you go and do an event, you know, you speak at a class, you go and have dinner with some people and then you do the public lecture um or or as a priest on sundays you know you're before covid i'll do i was doing three services a day on 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 a sunday and in between the services doing um adult formation and coffee hour and but making sure that then on sunday evening i have built in a time for myself to just um decompress as they say and um, and to make sure that I have um, made made the space for myself, and and interestingly enough, though um, the you know the study that many actors are introverts, and that mm. there's a way in which the acting is a way to appear to be an extrovert without put it being out there yourself. And and I think that maybe the same is true for clergy at least. That, you know, there's there's a, a performative part about being a priest. 
and that and so you are out you are up there you you're preaching you're presiding you are there with people at um at deaths you're there with people at weddings you know so times of great joy and also times of sadness and you have to be 100% present for people at that time but then you make the time to go back into your 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 shell your space mm -hmm. and in my case watch murder mysteries or read murder mysteries that that is you know you knew growing up that I would close my come back from a speech close my door and like don't come here for another 10 hours don't bother mom mm -hmm. <laughs> So you're the person that, you know, obviously taught me about Ubuntu day in and day out, but how do you describe it to people? Um, again, I think that it depends on the context that I'm trying to describe it in. So when I'm talking to people who are asking, so how, how do you experience Ubuntu in your life, in your daily life, everyday Ubuntu? let's say <laughs> I would say that so the way that I was taught it by my parents and the way I tried to teach it to you all is that to remember that you cannot survive as a solitary human being and that Ubuntu asks you to give credit to all those around you who have made you who you are. And Ubuntu also asks that you have enough respect for yourself that you have respect for others. And so my parents, for instance, used for us would tell us about Ubuntu, especially when we were arguing, because there were four of us. And, would get on each other's nerves for sure, especially on those long um, car rides. And, 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 and when we would fight and be insulting one another, my parents would be saying, you know, you think that this is showing that you have no respect for your sibling, but it really is showing a lack of respect for yourself. It's, it's showing a lack of Ubuntu. It's showing a lack of recognizing your own humanness in not recognizing the full humanness of your sibling. Or another would be, um, you know, we particularly, um, Uncle Trevor and I were, were very into team sports and, um, and we would, you know, come home just really excited about scoring a goal in hockey or netball or soccer or a try in rugby, whatever he, you know, whichever sports we were doing. And uh, Gogo and Kulu would say, but would you have been able to do that if the rest of the team had not been on the field? Oh, and I know, I mean, at that point it was just like, no, maybe not, but I, I still scored. I'm the one who scored. But I mean, when you keep hearing that, it does make you think that, you know, if I had been alone on that field with 11 opponents, how would I have got the ball all the way down the field into the goal? And it might not right away make you 
cherish Ubuntu and 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 hold on to the the concept. But it's an easy way to start thinking about your connectedness to other human beings. And I think and and so then. For me, the, the, the foundational part of Ubuntu is our connectedness. That, and, and it goes back to what we spoke about in the, in the first question, that apartheid is so antithetical to Ubuntu because the truth is nobody living under apartheid was free mm-hmm. because of Ubuntu. No matter that people did completely ignored it, the truth of Ubuntu is that there is no way to live in this world disconnected. You can think that you are buffering yourself with your money, with your wealth, with where you live, but for want of anything else, COVID has clearly shown us how interconnected we are. And that is the that is Ubuntu. We are interconnected. So then is there an instance from when you were growing up where you felt surrounded by Ubuntu? Oh, so many. Oh my goodness, monks. So many. Um, you know, so on the one hand, as I say, Goko, my Goko was such a a person that the our home was a place that welcomed so many people and and got to know people and be loved by people because my grandmother first loved them right and 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 gave them that warmth and so i felt like i had family extensively and and my my parents did the same that in our home almost always there was somebody else living with us. And so I had big brothers, big sisters, people who cared about me because they were first cared for. So this idea of Ubuntu is this idea that, you know, as you spread the the connection, as you spread the care, as you spread the respect, it redounds to you and to those in your community. and also, you know, we traveled so much um, growing up, and um, and I experienced Ubuntu over and over in communities that we moved into, into the ways that people welcomed us, into the ways that people cared about us. Um, you know, one of the examples from your life is that you know when we moved to Nashville. And you started first grade at, what was the school in Madison? And you told your teacher that your mom traveled a lot. And Cindy called me out of the blue and said, oh, Mungi tells me that you travel a lot and I'm a single woman. I'm quite happy to move in with the children into your house when you're traveling and I'll take Mpilo to daycare and take Mungi to school with me. And and I mean, this is what Ubuntu is, is somebody looking at you, seeing a fellow human being, seeing a need that you have that you might not even have voiced. 
and, and offering themselves to be a part of your family, a part of your community. And, and so, yeah, I've experienced it over and over. So sometimes it's helpful when children have loose lips. <laughs> yeah, don't, try and, don't try and cover that up now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, you spoke about apartheid a little bit, but I want uh, something that I, I think I've always wondered because whenever we, you know, would take groups to South Africa and go to maybe the apartheid museum or to Robben Island, thinking of these things happening to you always makes me very emotional. Mm. Um, and so how did it affect your view of yourself and black people, mm-hmm. but also your view of white people? Mm. That's a good question. So, you know, um, Yokulu used to say that one of the greatest sins of apartheid was that it ever made a child of God question whether they were fully a child of God. And I definitely had those times where I wondered whether black people were indeed God's second thought children and um, that wondered as a black child on the African continent and that this land that my ancestors had been on for generations um, saw I was treated as less than human, not just even less than a citizen, less than human. Um, And so it did make me, there were times when I I really had to struggle with this. Can God really love black people the same way God loves white people and allow this to be happening to us? And I think part of what um, kind of turned it for me in a way Um, and this then goes to my view of white people, was listening um, as I was growing up to the gospel and to preaching and to then wondering how can white people sit in church and listen to the gospel and listen to what Jesus said, listen to the Hebrew Bible and listen to what the prophets were saying to the people of Israel about what God required of them and, um, and, and, and yet go and put in place laws and policies that oppressed um, the African people on African land. And um, seriously, by the time I was a teenager, I, I had got to the point where I said, I guess white people don't really believe in God because if they believed in God, then they could not be doing the things that they are doing and and think that they're okay with God. I mean, so if they really believed that there was a God, there was no way that they could continue oppressing us. So then clearly it was a show for themselves or for us, their belief in God. 
right? And that they didn't believe, really, that there was a God who was looking and, and wondering about how they were treating their brothers and sisters who were black, who were Asian, who were colored in, in South Africa, who were indigenous in Australia, the US, Canada, all of, all of those places. It's like, how do you, really? No, you can't be. And, uh, and I've told friends, I've said, you know, when you hear that I've died, don't die for like, don't try and die for like two months after I've died because God is going to be booked up with me for at least 60 days after I die with all the questions I'm going to ask her, the things I'm going to ask her about what, she, you know, apartheid, about colonialism, about period pains, about giving birth, about, you know, all, I've got, I've got a whole list that God and I are going to have to go through. Oh, goodness. Well, how do you, you know, I'm, you clearly know that my brother and I are not religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in these tough moments that we have, I think, I don't know what he looks to. Um, but obviously Ubuntu has really over the last at least four years made a difference in my life. How do you keep your faith in, you know, these many instances of racism and misogyny that you have experienced, Mm -hmm. but now are, are front and center for everyone? Mm. I'm working on a presentation right now with uh, a fellow South African, a white South African, about our exp- the 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 mirroring of our experiences in South Africa, um, growing up under apartheid, and um, the experiences that we're having now in the U.S. and um, and I spoke in that about um, um, the night that President Mandela was declared the winner of the elections in South Africa in 1994, um, when you were a, a two-year-old and um, going out that night into the streets of Soweto, where, I mean, the celebration was, was just going. And I put you on my back and went with you out into that celebration and I said you know you might not, you might not remember but I want you to be able to say I was there I I actually participated and um and so we, we went out into that street and I mean it was just euphoric and went back to the house and went and talked to Makulu my maternal grandmother and and she was you know just saying my child just look how amazing this is you know i always believed that this day would come in your lifetime but this is ama- our amazing god that i'm i've actually lived to see it and it is that that keeps my faith in 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 times like this is that my grandmother had faith that apartheid would end, that it might not end in her lifetime, but that she was working for her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren to have a better life. And it's that faith that I know is the faith of my ancestors from the time that the Europeans landed on the African continent and and made Africans um, be seen as second, third less than human class people, that 
that ans that line of ancestors who refused to accept no matter what they were told that they were less than in God's eyes and struggled for that justice. And so that is the faith that I was then able to talk to you and Francis about in, in 2016, the day after the elections, to remind you of who you are, of who you come from, of what it is that our people have shown the world about God's plan for this this for this that is God's creation and that you and sometimes I'm not gonna lie sometimes I hold on to that faith by the skin of my teeth but I but I hold on to it because I I I know that a God who created a world and looked at everything that she had created looked at the plants, the animals, the sea things, and even human beings and said, it is very good. That that God has no intention that any part of God's creation should be abused. And that our responsibility then is to be those who fight to end the abuse of God's children and God's creation. So then how do you also find joy in times like these? And again, I think it comes from my heritage, my community. Um, you know, I, um, I remember um, my first husband who was American being like really shocked to put it mildly that people at home celebrated and laughed and and danced and sang and um you know like in general yeah just in general um, that he you know he i think that he thought that when he would go to south africa he would find all black south africans just you know so under the burden of apartheid that um we we just could not lift our heads and um that there was no joy in our lives but um there is a way that i have found more joy in in black South Africans. I have found more joy, joy, not happiness, mm -hmm. which I think is a different thing, you know, happiness. <laughs> but joy is like a deep, it's a core central thing. It's, a, it's about, it, it is, again, to me, it is about knowing that you are made in God's image, knowing that you are of infinite worth, no matter what the world is saying, knowing that, um, yeah, that you are part of God's intended creation. And I have found more joy in black South Africans, in uh, black, uh, black people, black Americans. In I mean, I have found more joy in oppressed communities than, than I have found in the communities of the oppressors. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it is central to be continuing in the struggle is holding on to this joy that that is a joy that is a God-given gift to us.
So what does it look like to be an activist in 2020? Do you do you see parallels between, you know, the activism and the activists of today and of apartheid? The anti-apartheid? Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. I mean, when you look at, for instance, Black Lives Matter and seeing predominantly young people leading that movement, that's so similar to the 70s and 80s in South Africa. Um, even this this kind of thing that you, you hearing young people say, like, you know, we are not our parents. Don't mess with us the way that you thought you could mess with the, the generation before us. That was very much what young people were saying in South Africa in the 70s and 80s, that we are intent that this is going to change. And we recognize that some of us might be sacrificed. Some of us will suffer mm -hmm. in reaching this change of society. But this society is going to change. And I, and I think that the, the pushback against Black Lives Matter is largely out of this, this, this recognition by the powers that be that this is a, 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 a movement that is, that is not captured in a moment, right? And that as much as they are moving against people in, in Portland, that the movement rises in another city. As much as they try and demonize leaders in one community, you know, like they tried to demonize um, the Parkland youth, mm -hmm. um, that young people are standing up in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and saying, we are going to stop um, not just the abuse of the police of people in the community, but we are going to stop the sexual harassment that is happening in the police force by police officers against men and women in the ranks. So that, that and, and, and to me that looks so much like South Africa in the 80s, where the apartheid government kept on banning organizations, arresting leaders, um, uh, closing down institutions, and they could not. I mean, they they were they were trying to whack it down, but <laughs> it sprung up all over because people had reached this realization that this system cannot continue to oppress us if we continue to stand against it, and and the, and that's what I'm seeing in 2020. And, you know, and, and, and I think that it is clear that the powers that be see that too. That, you know, they keep bringing out these things. Why can't you be more like Martin Luther King Jr.? Oh. But when Martin Luther King Jr. was here, you called him a communist, a terrorist, anti-American. Uh, so, and you know. And he also did not die by natural causes. And, so. Yeah, and so clearly you didn't love him at that point. So why are you bringing him up now? And I, and. You know, you know, in growing up in South Africa, 
how they talked about Nelson Mandela as a terrorist, a communist who wanted to throw white people into the sea. And as soon as he became president, it was like, oh my gosh, President Mandela, the most popular person in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I, you know, I, I say that it is clear to me the, the, the connections and, and, and I, I, I honor, I give honor to the young people leading, leading the movement today. And I ask them to stay courageous and to stay sure of their role in liberating the United States and all these other countries of, of racism. Very important in, in in any of these movements, and all these movements are always women. And you know, I think that you have taught me to be a strong woman. Maybe too strong for some people's views. I don't mm, know. Mine included. Unfortunate for them. <laughs> um, but where where do you see women's rights today? Where, like, where do you think we need to go? I don't think that there's a change in where we need to go. I mean, look at um, the, the the real attacks on women's control of their body that are growing in in in, in the U.S. Um, that um, the 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 anti-abortion that a movement that um, has permeated. Um, churches that has permeated even the justice system that all the, the 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 moves that are in place to overturn Roe versus Wade so that that is the same struggle right that is still the same struggle i think it might look differently um that that many young women i talk to say well i feel completely liberated. I don't feel as though there is anything holding me back, but it is still unsafe mm -hmm. for women. There are, you know, women cannot walk in this country at any time in any place and feel safe in the same way that men can. So right there, we're not liberated. Um, women are, are, are clearly judged and, um, and, and, and seen in the political sphere, in the business sphere, in, in almost every sphere, judged differently um, from, from men. You know, that, um, that part of the criticism of Hillary Clinton was that she didn't look like a, a, a happy woman, that she didn't... You didn't want to share a beer with her. Or... Yeah, exactly. I mean, like... Who who would want? So I mean, the, the, those those kind of questions about and how how you dress, um, what is it that you wear? Clearly, we are not at the level of 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 men seen as equal to men. Let's not even start talking about pay parity. So the for me the the movement for women is the same movement that my grandmother was in. And um, and the 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 places of of of, of most need or, or most obvious might not be might not seem to be the same, 
but the the foundations are the same the places where we need to borrow down are the same A access to education um the you know that we are still having conversations about rape victims like what was she doing there what was she wearing what had she been drinking what what we don't have that conversation about men who are held up in their car or have their car um carjacked for instance so clearly we are not at 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 the same level of as men in people's perceptions about our rights to our very bodies is there a piece of advice that you could leave myself and my listeners with? <laughs> Why are you laughing? A piece of advice that you could leave my me and my, my listeners, oh my or my listeners and me. Okay, I won the Spoken English Award. Like, we yeah, don't need like, to fix my grammar right now. Can like you? Like 10 years ago. Okay, advice. My listeners and me. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, I think. For me, it, it truly does come down to two things. One, to know that you are physically who God wants you to be. That you are black, that you are a woman, that you are, you know, all of the things about you are who God created you to be. That you are who God created you to be in terms of who you love, that you are gay straight in between because that's how God sees the beauty of difference in God's world, that God wants diversity, right? So that's the first, is that God has created you as an amazing human being live into that and the second comes out of that that god has created others as amazing human beings and um and and live into a respect for others now that doesn't that is i am not saying that when somebody is a racist that is how god created them because that is very far because clearly then that person does not respect the diversity that God has put in the world. So I'm not saying that you love a racist or you love a homophobe or you love a xenophobe, xenophobic person or you, know, you love an Islamophobe, but that you start from the place of recognizing that God has created human beings in a diversity and that uh, if you truly respect yourself then it would be impossible for you to be racist to be homophobic to be islamophobic to be xenophobic to be a place that holds hate for anyone for anyone so maybe the third thing is to pray for the hearts of those whose hearts are filled with hate um, that they might come to see themselves as um, as truly loved by God. You know, like Toni Morrison said, 
if to stand tall you need somebody to be on their knees, you have a problem. And so those who look down on others because of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, have a problem. I'm only 5'2", so I don't look down on many people. <laughs> and that's not my fault. And a half. That you're 5'2". And a half. Um, I'm taller than you. You're not. Yes, I am. What, what is your greatest fear for humanity? I'm sure you're used to this one. <laughs> and what kind of things do you practice to help stop that fear coming to pass? So my greatest fear is that hate will win the day mm. in 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 places around the world. You know, I mean, it, it is much easier to stoke hate. It really is. It is much easier to tell people that the reason you are suffering is because there are Mexicans at the border. Or the reason you are suffering is because black people are taking everything from you. That the reason you are suffering. So, so it is easy if people are looking for easy answers rather than looking for ways of building community to build up hate. So that is my fear, is that that hate will overpower us. Even though we are taught that hate cannot overcome love. But the truth is that there are points where hate can overcome love and we've seen them we've seen apartheid we've seen the holocaust we've seen slavery so we know that it is possible for hate to overcome love and so that's that is my greatest fear and what i do to um in my own small way fight against that is to continue to try and teach myself and, and, and practice myself what I just so told you about respecting myself, recognizing myself as God's creation, trying to respect others, praying that those whose hearts are filled with hate will find light coming into their hearts, um, showing them, and then to keep speaking about that, to tell, to say, this is not... There is no way that this is the way of God. No way. So then what is your greatest hope for humanity? My greatest hope for humanity is that we will recognize that we are part of a creation that the creator looked at and said, it is very good. And not just us, the whole of creation. And that we will get to a place where we are able to um, enjoy the rest of creation, respect the rest of creation as we respect ourselves, that recognize that there is no way we can survive on the planet killing off the rest of the planet. Um, and, and, and so that's my, that's my greatest hope. And, um, and what do I do? Again, it's exactly the same. It is to hold that place in me, to continue to try and teach myself to treat others and creation with respect. And But that doesn't mean I don't kill bugs. I do kill bugs. I know. I know. I have friends who tell me that mm -hmm. I should not kill bugs because they're part of 
creation. And so I had to make that confession. You're part of the environment. Oh my but, gosh. I know. But circle of life. <laughs> but um but to work on that and to keep speaking when I get the opportunity to talk about that belief and 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 encourage people to take those steps for themselves to look at themselves as part of a wonderful creation. Thank you, mommy. <laughs> You're welcome, Mungi. Nompumelelo kabisiwe zuzogushe Marie ngomani. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.